Do I sound nasal or something? Yeah, you sound um, like tongue. you could use like another three hours of sleep I, and maybe a Sudafed. Yeah, I could use a few more hours <laughs> of sleep. Uh, I concur, but I'm 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 very excited. I'm I'm jazzed for today's show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a it's been a really crazy week. I don't know about in your world. Every I mean, week your month, you me. have a bad October. I just had an exceptionally bad week this week. Yeah, yeah. It seems like. Um, well, October's uh, the birthdays and anniversaries, and, right? Um, but I'm actually. Yeah, you, we should wish a, a happy birthday to your lovely wife. I mean, yes, happy birthday. Well, we'll um, yeah, okay. Well, I'll get put it in, in the uh, main part of the show. Right, right. Not um, in the beginning. But even though I, I may sound a little tired, I am psyched up for this show. I'm excited to talk about. You're, this. you're professional. I'm you know, know I got to turn it on. You're no Alec Baldwin, for example. <laughs> oh, I heard about <laughs> Apparently, him shooting some lack somewhat. I don't know what happened there, but you know, the prime rule of acting is probably not to shoot yeah, people use, in the face. Yeah, don't use the actual gun. Um, right. And we're back. Welcome to Recovery in the Middle Ages, the podcast about two middle-aged suburban dads and their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. I'm Nat X. And I'm Mike R. And boy. R. Isn't it? Speak like a pirate day. It we, is. I think we missed it this year. Anyway, sorry. Why do we have a show for you? Today on RMA. It's another, RMA. <laughs> it's just like a Halloween. <laughs> sorry. Um, it's another exciting and informative edition of Get Smart with Aaron Moore. Today we're discussing the shocking documentary, The Last Stop, all about the Elon School, a teen recovery community, and the horrors that were later uncovered. All this and more today on a very... Special edition of RMA. And hey. how are you, sir? I'm doing good, man. Whenever yeah. you say, like, when you told me this this documentary was called The Last Stop, yeah, it really brought me back because when I was um, drinking a lot back in uh, the 90s, there was a bar up in Inwood uh, in Manhattan called The Last Stop. Mm. And uh, it was the last stop literally on the train and also yeah. figuratively for a lot of people that used to drink there. Uh, <laughs> so that that's what I think of when I hear that. But. Oh, man. I miss those days of feeling at home at those dive bars. Yeah. You know, like there was a time where if it wasn't a bar like that, mm -hmm. I was uncomfortable. Where everybody knows your name. Every <laughs> that's right. In a vaguely threatening way. Yes. They know your name. You know, you walk in the next day and you don't quite remember the circumstances of your departure the day before. And you're uh, kind of like, this could go one of two ways. You I know? used to stress over like, well, did I really say that? Or did I dream that? Or did I do that? And usually when I went outside the next morning and if my car was, you know, smashed, uh, which happened a couple of times right. coming back from this bar I used to play, my band used to play at. Um, and I was already with my wife. I feel like I think we were dating at the time. And, uh, and so I would stay there, my wife would go home, and uh, I would continue to drink, and it was snowing one, one evening, and mm. uh, it wasn't a far drive from, I lived like re reasonably close to that bar, and, um, uh, and then uh, on the way back, I mean, I was wasted, on the way back, I uh, plowed into uh, like a snowbank on the side, <laughs> I remember hitting it, and then it like kind of eased back off, into the, there's nobody on the road, 
and my whole front of my car is crunched up and I could see over it and then uh-huh. I just drove the rest of the way home. Listen, if the car keeps driving, that's a, <laughs> yeah. that's a victory. <laughs> Pulled know? into the driveway and just, you know, creeped into bed late, you know, she was sleeping. Morning comes, I'm still sleeping. Nah, what the, <laughs> what happened last night? I'm like, oh, how did know. that happen? Uh, and that, that's happened more than once. I just want to uh, reiterate. So, yeah. um, yep. I miss those days sometimes, but really, I, I don't miss it at all. No, I don't. I don't miss it at all. You know, but do I regret it? I mean, some some of the, sometimes I miss the chaos because. But do we regret it? This is going to bring oh. us to our monkster speak nah. segment today. We're talking regrets. No, no regrets. No, um, no rugrats. Uh, so, um, where should they find first, us? First, first, we would like to welcome all the new people listening here in the USA and around the world. Uh, we love hearing from you. Please, if you like us and you like what you hear, write a review on your favorite podcast listening platform and share it with a friend. And I just wanted to say, um, uh, some monsters on the uh, private group were talking like, are you going to do a meetup, you know, like in <laughs> Europe? Yeah, they want us to fly over to Europe to um, to hang out, which, yeah, you know, I would, I would like, totally do. That it. is, and that's what I said, I said, that is a dream. I yeah. would love to come and do a meetup in Europe. I think it's so cool that we have listeners in Europe. But like I said, you know, I'm a big, I'm into the spooky stuff. And uh, I think I would want to collab- do that with a haunted castle tour. I, like, I, I don't so know if you saw what I, stuff in, what I uh, Europe. put on the, 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 the post, but I said we should have a meetup at the Virgin Mary bar in Dublin and then go on a haunted castle tour. Be sick. Right. I would like, that would be so much fun. Yeah. It would have to be some, that, that's going to be like, that's going to be the way we do meetups, right. you know, other podcasts, whatever they do, <laughs> right. but we do, you know, we do like a, a week and weird, yeah. uh, you know, weekend, week and weird weekend. Yeah. Spend a right? week and weird with RMA. Yeah. Um, um, so yeah, come to the private group. That's yeah. what you were about to and say. And also the middle, the middle classes recovery. I was going to say the middle ages recovery.com. Oh, speaking of welcoming all the new people listening, it's just funny. There's a guy I know who, who I know from elsewhere. Okay. Mm. Who listens to the podcast. Um, and he's doing sober October and he says, um, yeah, I listen. I started listening to you guys again. He's like, I can't listen to you while I'm drinking. He's like, it's sort of like getting a hand job in church. <laughs> I was like, well, okay, it's funny, Thanks, man. But, uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, he's doing. Also, um, I know we're not getting through the. Uh, the uh, visit us here. at middleagesrecovery.com to listen, submit your story, buy, watch them. I actually. I don't have it in my face today. I have something important though to yeah. interrupt. Okay, with. do that. Um, so speaking of of your friend wanting to have sober October, right? Our very own um, Sergeant Slaughter has expressed interest finally in um, wanting to do the alcohol experiment. Aha! Uh-huh. Which is Annie Grace's. Um, program i guess you would call it 30 day road to perfection yeah so he he said he would do it and uh and so of course you know there's a catch we have to follow up with him every week right and maybe we do a a little segment and he has to do it and he's got to actually do it so (laughs) very cool are we gonna do that is he gonna do that i don't know well now he's gonna hear this on the show and it's gonna get him psyched up for (laughs) it he's gonna i probably hopes i forgot about it but i didn't we Um, should bring him in throw another mic up should they uh, buy a t-shirt of course. Yeah. Somebody should buy a t-shirt. Yeah. Because nobody's buying the t-shirts. Yeah. Middleagesrecovery.com. Click the uh, shopping cart and buy a t-shirt. Yeah. We have a lot of t-shirts cool. and stickers too. And they're soft. Yeah. I mean, otherwise we can have to like start a Patreon or something. Yeah. You know. 
That's not, it's not a threat. We may do that anyway. But um, Also, we, we've been not receiving a lot of your stories lately. Yes. A dearth of your stories. We need um, more stories. So if you go to our website at middleagesrecovery.com, there's a form you can fill out or you can email um, natx at middleagesrecovery.com or Mike R at middleagesrecovery.com with your story. Um, great stories will be read on the air, even not so great ones. Mm. You know, We read yeah. all of them because right now we don't have any. So Yeah, and leave a review. Five stars are appreciated. Uh, and if you, could, if you give the five stars, I noticed we went up from 4.8 to 4.9 again. Yeah, so so got- some people have been giving us some... Better, some better reviews. Um, and if you write a little something there, you could even leave your, your your story there if you don't want to like write it on the uh website. Because if you write it there with five stars, uh, the Apple algorithm likes that very much and it puts us higher and higher in the ratings. It's a two for one until we we get your story and a review, and then we can take over the recovery podcast universe. But we do have a review, um, right? Right, we do. Um, and this one is from 12-Step Buddy. The subject is recovery and rehab. Five stars. Hey, guys. I have been uh, an RMA listener from the beginning. Thanks to hearing about you on the Dopey Podcast. I'm a 44-year-old longtime alcohol and drug user. Your podcast didn't stop me from drinking or drugging, but once I lost everything in my life, it did help me to give rehab a chance. Well, that's awesome. Uh, we can However, catch, we can help. We got you on the rebound. <laughs> I'm currently 20 days sober in a 30-day rehab program in California. Great. I've learned a lot about myself so far, and I've learned I need help uh once back in the real world again Mm. keep on doing what you're doing and thank you for sharing your experiences absolutely that is such a big like it's so important to you know think of your life after rehab rehab is great for getting into a recovery mindset Mm. and pulling you out of your situation so you can get some space to breathe but the fact is you need a plan uh for coming out of that um and that's something uh, that friend of mine who just got out of rehab that we're, you know, trying to help him with as far as getting his recovery routine. And you're learning a new way to live your life. So um, kudos to you. Thank you so much for sticking with us. Thank you, 12-step buddy. Um, That was pretty cool. Yeah. But uh, since we have know your story, I thought we would read Monsters Speak. Sure. Speak, speak, (laughs) speak. Monsters Speak, speak. Um, I need to get a Muppets theme going for that. <laughs> so Monster Speak was this new uh, segment that I wanted to do because we were having such great conversations on uh, the private Facebook group. So sometimes I'll I'll post a, like a thought experiment or I'll be thinking about something and I want your thought feedback. Thought experiment. Yeah, that's, that's fancy. what these things are. They're thought experiments. Uh, I wrote, hey, Monsters, I was just thinking about regrets, having them, accepting them, moving on. Uh, some people live by... Have no regrets, but I don't know. Maybe regretting something is actually a healthy acknowledgement that you did something that wasn't the best thing for your life. I'm conflicted on it. What are your thoughts on having regrets in life and what to do with them? Hmm. And what did they say? We got some. They said some interesting things. They did. What so, Jammy Jelly Less Jammy. said, uh, <laughs> Jammy. I changed the language. Regret equals lessons. Okay. I, I, that's kind of where I'm at. Regret is less. So, it's a rebrand of the word. It is. But sometimes rebranding can can really change things around in your head. For example, the way you rebrand your relationship with alcohol, right? Uh, via cognitive behavioral therapy or this naked mind, right? Absolutely. Um, maybe we don't read the last names. Although I don't think Jelly Less. I'm, I'm not sure, but I don't think that's his real last name. 
Hers. Hers. Yes. Oh. Yeah, Jamie, she's... I'm sorry, I couldn't tell. If- she's the vanguard. She's the one that came up with the term alt-recovery movement. That's true. Mm-hmm. It's a true story. Okay. Um, <laughs> Melissa M. Uh, writes, all we have is the now, right? Isn't the power of now trending these days? LOL. Laughing emoji. Uh, easier said than done. Most of my regrets are helpful towards my alcohol-free journey. Uh, like regretting throwing up all over my mother-in-law's guest bedroom at Easter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess, you know, I, I I agree with this this idea that, you know, it's okay to have regrets. Um, so I wonder, I mean, have you heard that? Like, don't have any regrets, regret nothing. Like, is that just like a tough guy thing? Um, well, Mike Ross commented on on your thing a couple did, of months ago. Oh, Mike now. Ross did? Yeah, so, did he say? So Mike Ross, um, Mike Ross says, regrets... Uh, are a form of impossible time travel. Mm. You look back with the current version of you and judge decisions you made as a former version of you. It doesn't seem fair to me to evaluate the past with your present mindset. If I had the knowledge I have today, I wouldn't have made the choices I made then, but that is an unresolvable paradox. I can try to learn from my mistakes, but the best I can muster is a, what was I thinking? Mm. Um, That's kind of where I'm at on that. I mean, regret is a loaded term. So I really like uh, Jelly Less um, changing the language, you know, because you can, you can dwell in the past quite a bit, but I'm not sure, quite sure how that helps you move forward. And I'm all about yeah. moving forward, you know? We don't, what is it? We don't shut the door on the past or something, but turn around and run away screaming from it. Or what <laughs> is it? Um, Meanwhile, you can sit in, in the rooms and tell drunk, Drunkalogs and all that stuff. So yeah, you know, that is do. a little dwelling on the past. A um, couple more comments that I wanted to read. Uh, Hope uh, Hope DB, we'll call her, uh, says, We all have regrets, but dwelling on them isn't healthy, just like we were saying. Mm-hmm. I look at regrets as something to learn from. Yes, there we go. Lessons learned. Um, also, uh, last one I'll read. Uh, Rob S., uh, he, he wrote a couple of good comments, but this is one that I... I wanted to read he writes uh it's certainly a fine balance i started my recovery journey six weeks ago but have slipped about eight days of that mostly most of the eight being in the latter weeks roughly a two on two pattern two on two off the regret has stopped me drinking continuously but at the same time too much of it has probably led me to drink two out of three days in a row it can become insidious which is dangerous but i have to I have to have the regret in order to want to change things. My opinion is from a point of still using an early recovery. So I'm in the put right the wrongs mentality. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that's another good point. So maybe maybe the conclusion that we can draw from, uh, from this Monkster Speak segment is regrets are not something to dwell on or be obsessed over, merely something to acknowledge uh, and to use them as a point uh, for moving on and learning. Right. Boom. I agree with that. Sort of like what Frank Sinatra said in the song, My Way. Regrets, I've had a few. Right. And then something, right. something, something. I did it my way. I did it my way. <laughs> um, so how was your week? Let's catch up. Wow. Okay. How was your week? Going right into that, huh? Yeah, let's do it. We uh, had a Sunday fun day. What did we do this week? What did week? we do this week? Well, Bay Day, last Saturday. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. So that's a big deal in our town, sort of, uh, because... I, of course, I just named the town we live in, but... Did you? Yeah. All right. Maybe we'll find it. That's all right. <laughs> uh, and it was a, a big fair in town, and 
lots of people. It's instead of this other huge fair that normally happens, this is sort of like a COVID replacement. Yes. So it was kind of light, light, very light, you know. But people from all over came into town, and um, of course, my little shop being uh, in the center of town, um, I was you know hoping people would come in and shop. Um, some did, most didn't, uh, and it was. Um, Basically, uh, a lot of fun. Did well, you actually go there and get some clams and stuff? Um, Aaron and I went for a walk on Saturday morning oh. early, like at 7 uh, or 7.30 or something. And uh, so they were just setting up. We walked through town, which is how I like to experience street fairs when there's no people at them. Right, I, right. I find those to be much, more, much more pleasant. Um, but the funny thing is I noticed like... The pickle guy was setting up. You know, all these street fairs always have a pickle There's guy. There's always a pickle guy. There's always a pickle guy. He's got spicy pickles, half sweet pickles. Guy. Well, and that goes goes to where I'm going with this. Yeah. You know, I showed up at your shop that morning because I had to drop the dog off for a haircut. Right. And I, and I come in and I, I had a chance to speak to your lovely parents. Yeah, they were yeah. stopping in. They were going to yes. the fair too. And I mentioned... Um, Seeing the pickle guy and your father just just like I know the pickle guy. Yeah, he like, lit up. He's like the he's like in the pickle mafia. He knows like all the pickle people around. <laughs> yeah. And there's like, I guess it's the same guy that's got a pickle place in yeah. a couple different towns, and he runs the street operation. It's amazing. I'm a like, miracle. how does your dad know the pickle? It all goes Meister. back to our. He we know him from church. That's how oh, okay. we know all, all right. of these. People. So the, the pickle meister is a Presbyterian. Yeah, he's at least related to one. Yeah, I okay. think he's this. This time, but um, yeah, so you know, we got the pickles, and then, but there wasn't like fair food. You know, a lot of the people who came into my shop were complaining to me, as if I have something to do with it, that there wasn't enough food at mm-hmm. the fair. You're gonna like, sell hot dogs next year. I, you know, <laughs> and I, I just think I can't win. You know, um, there were pretzels, and there were pickles, and the pretzels were eight dollars, and they're they're not very good because it's the same pretzel guy from. You know. Yeah, but these all of these local politicians always show up to these things, right? Um, and uh, I inevitably run into uh, Senator Gorin, and um, usually the town clerk. I know him pretty well, and uh, Josh Lafazan. Yes, um, but it's funny because when the senator and he's the senator, I guess of New York, mm-hmm. Gorin. Uh, but I recognize him, so when I see him, I, I act like I know him. <laughs> oh, hey, uh, Senator Gorin, how, how are you doing, you? Jim? Hey, how's it been? You know, and I always get this look like, do I know this guy? Where do I know this guy from? You know, but I, I just keep going with it, and uh, they're always friendly. He, uh, how's business? He always looks like he's got his. He looks like. He's a, sort of like a deer yeah. during hunting season, yeah. you know, because there's so many Republicans yep. here and he's a Democrat and he's at a, at a street fair in the middle of like the enemy territory. Yep. So his eyes are always darting around like he's, he's got to hide under a rock or something. I, I did notice that. Yeah. That's funny that you should say so, that. The same thing with uh, the other guy who, Josh, yeah. who, um, you know, I made the mistake of picking up the phone when he called because I... My son went was an intern for him this summer. Oh, so he calls you personally? He calls me because I interviewed him on my other podcast when right. he was first running, so he has always appreciated that. Oh, cool. But he called me not to like shoot the breeze. He's like, he put, kind of put me on the spot. He's like, you're going to go knock on some doors for me next weekend. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> oh, don't tell Sergeant Slaughter. He hates Josh Lafazan. Yeah, I don't know why. I, I mean, don't either. It's weird. <laughs> all the police unions on Long Island endorse the guy, so I don't understand yeah. why cops don't like him, but it whatever. It was weird because um, they put a Josh Lafazan sign on my lawn for some reason. I guess because at some point I should... I signed something. Yeah, I signed something. <laughs> so they just put these signs on your lawn and hope you don't take them down, I guess is the tactic. Mm-hmm. So uh, Sergeant Slaughter must have been driving by my house and saw it, and he just got like... 
that motherfucker and he's his <laughs> fucking white privilege and da 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 da. I'm like, whoa. I'm like, what did Josh Levison ever do? do? Yeah. So there's something I, I, I it's like I want to know, but I kind of don't want to know because like it's probably some crazy reason. You know what? He took it. What did he do to piss off Sergeant Slaughter? That's what I want to know. During the, the BLM protests that something summer, to do with that. he got up and he made a, some a really sort of conciliatory and and sort of neutral statement about support for for Black Lives Matter or something. I mean, his African-American constituents totally within his rights to do so. Yeah. And I think the cops threw a hate on him because of that. Because so that's they what assumed that he was anti-police when actually he's worked more closely with the police in this county than anybody. And really, Josh's uh, claim to fame, the reason people like him is because if you, if like the bridge is out, you call him, he'll go there and like... <laughs> Get it open, you know. It's it's uh, he's that kind of guy. He's like a he's a pothole politician. Yeah, and he, just for for the crowd, he's very young. I mean, he's like twenty five or something. He was the youngest elected official yeah. in New York State history. So he's a wonderkin, you know. He's yeah. Ivy League this and that, mm-hmm. and you know, and a nice guy too. That's what. So when when Sergeant Slaughter's going off about this, Josh Lafferson, I'm just I don't I don't know I don't see it. Yeah. I, yeah. Um. So people get very very um. Up in arms about local politics, even though the other uh, thing that he did you know. that was great was um, he works very closely uh, distribution of Narcan. Uh, yeah. The issue of um, uh, the opioid crisis and everything is high on his radar. He's very uh, you know involved in in that sort of thing. So you know he's okay in my book. But yeah, we've completely lost our audience. Yeah, Maybe absolutely. We talk about but I think I, you know what church again. I think if. If uh, Sergeant Slaughter's head hasn't exploded yet, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to make sure I try to avoid running into him at the shop for the next week or so. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that was a you, lot. Did of, you sell some Oakleys? I did. Don't you I have this case of Oakleys that's been here for like yeah, years? Yeah, this case of Oakleys, and they keep calling me to pay for them. But um, <laughs> yeah, I got this just like that was, I don't know why I put that in the outline. Like, what does that have to do with it? I sold a <laughs> pair of Oakleys. I, I'm making Oh, this. I thought you meant you sold like all of them. No, no? I sold one right. pair. I don't know why I put that on all there. All right. Uh, yeah, I don't want to talk about my rental car woes either. <laughs> what the hell? Oh, uh, so your uh, your son is looking at colleges. Yeah, so was Grant's. I think Grant's kid. It was his daughter. Yeah, she's uh, at, in Massachusetts yeah, at a so college the, up there. Is this like college visiting season? Well, I think she's going to college there. Right. He's just looking at ones to go to next year. Oh, right. So okay. he went up with my wife. So a mixed bag this week because I discovered. Uh, that he is uh, apparently still smoking the devil's lettuce. How, um, uh, how did you determine that? Hmm. How did I determine that? <clears throat> well, I, I had some inclination that his affect was perhaps different than it had been in previous months. So like any good parent, I go up to his room and I start snooping around. Um, and... I actually had to pull out a air conditioning filter from underneath and I wasn't sure where it was. So I looked in this sort of a hidden area underneath the eave. You can access it by a panel and there's a backpack in there and being Uh, a nosy parent I am, I open uh, the backpack and I find like a bag of cush and a bong and a, you know. Oh man. Yeah, so, but you know. What are you supposed to do? We were talking about this when, when, uh, during the week, like as a parent of a, of a, an older teenager he's seven, about to go to college. Yeah, he's going to be 17 next week. Like, like, what's your play? Like, what can you even I mean, do? Well, first of all, because the ADHD is, is a confounding variable, um, first of all, I took, the, I took the bag, I copied the name of the strain, and I researched it yeah. <laughs> on the internet. And I found out that, that one thing that it's supposed to do is bring focus 
and uh, elevate mood. And him having the ADHD, you know, I, I discussed this with my wife, and she's her impression was like, well, he's trying to find something to help him focus. Yeah. And, you know. That was my son's excuse for wanting G Fuel, this um, oh. energy drink. Yeah. Well, you said I have ADHD, right? And uh, it, it makes it's me a, focus. Funny you should say that because Dimitri was taking that AG fuel for like a couple of years. Oh yeah, yeah. He was <laughs> sucking that stuff down. So did it work? I think he's. I think my son is looking for something to help him right. focus and stuff. And and at this age, what am I going to do? You know, if I if I take if I take all the stuff and throw it away, it's going to cause a huge problem. If I leave it, I'm sort of tacitly and not say anything. Then he doesn't know I found it. Right. Mm. So I know right. that he's smoking, but he doesn't know that and I know. It, yeah. Right. <laughs> Mind games. Or I could tell him, look, I found your pot. I'm not going to take it. You're old enough to make certain choices about yourself. Uh, I said, but, you know, is this helping or hurting your. You? Is that what you ended up doing? No, I ended up doing nothing because I, I didn't see. want there to be an issue when he would just before he was going on the college visitation trip. Gotcha. Right? Because he's, because still, when he was smoking pot two years ago, yeah. he couldn't like string together like. Uh, he couldn't sit in class. He couldn't. He was sneaking off to the bathroom to get high with his friends in school. Mm-hmm. Now he's like the. I wouldn't say he's the model student because he still has a lot of challenges, you know, getting things done and everything. But he's doing well. So maybe it's so. Uh, what am, you know? I don't know what to do. If any of you guys out there have yeah. any suggestions for me, you know, please, Mike send R. Them a, yeah, Mike <laughs> R. R at middleagesrecovery.com because I'm not sure how to play this one, guys. You know, I, I. I'm a co-host of a recovery podcast, but when it comes to my own kids' drug use, yeah. I'm a bit out of sorts, you know? Yeah, so uh, what would you guys do? I know a lot of our listeners have teenage kids or have been through it um, in the past, and uh, I wonder what if, what the difference... Now that we have these listeners um, in in Europe, I wonder what... Because the culture is different. Right. And I think that's actually a really interesting point, like the way, you know, Europe uh, views alcohol... And the way the United States handles it. I wonder what mm-hmm. the differences are. I know it's more baked into their culture, I think, drinking like on the job and things like yeah. going to lunch. But I don't know. It'd be great to to yeah. uh, to dive into that a little bit. I don't think he's drinking, though. That's that's inter- the interesting thing. Cause well, it's harder for him to get alcohol. Maybe it is. And that's one of those ease of access things that we talked about. You know, alcohol, he can't go buy a beer at right. 7-Eleven. But he can easily get wheat, especially now. It's legal. Right, it's not available at Seven Eleven yet, but yeah, um, it's way easier to get. Yeah, and maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. I just uh, you know, and it, it's just pot, right? right. <laughs> it's the other thing. It's like, I mean, should I be grateful that I just found weed and not like other things? You well, know? you've got you know, we both have these different age group kids. I mean, you've got a you know, you got one that's my kid's age, but. There are different problems that come with different sure. points in a kid's life. Um, this Sunday, we had my my oldest son's eleventh um, birthday party. Now, why was it so much? Why was it so early? He's got this girlfriend who couldn't come to it on his actual birthday, so he moved the whole thing. Wow! You know, to the uh, week before, just for her. Now, what kind of party was it? A Squid Game themed party totally Um, awesome idea so now he's 10 and i don't know if this is this total like it's everywhere squid game is on everyone's uh radar for some reason and um have you watched it i did i reluctantly you know noah wanted to watch it and i 
I'm pretty permissive with him and watching stuff. You know, I like to watch it with him if right. it's something like that, so I can explain it or put it in a context. And uh, so we watched Squid Game together, and he just loved it um, for whatever reason. I don't know. It's this dark kind of. It's something weird. It's just a lot of people getting shot, messing up, playing, you know, play playground games. So for his party, um, they had they did the games right. They did right. like a tug of war. And they did um, red light, green light. And instead of actually shooting the contestants, <laughs> they had one of uh, Noah's friends, Evan, standing there with a Nerf gun, and he would, you know, shoot him. Right. But uh, but uh, <laughs> but Ben came, your son, right. and uh, and Aaron, your wife, came, and she helped us a ton. It was like super helpful. Just nice to have another adult there. But while she's there, she says to us, her mother showed up at your house while she was there. So yes. were you by yourself? And she sends me a picture. And um, <laughs> this is uh, Mike's mother-in-law is sitting on this motorcycle riding behind an, this motorcycle guy. <laughs> and uh, So what was that? And what happened? Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I was just getting my own motorcycle. Um, I was going to take it out for a little ride because I finally had like a few minutes. <clears throat> so I, I get it to the end of the driveway. You know, I'm warming it up. And I look down the street and there's my, my mother-in-law and her boyfriend pulling up on this giant Indian that yeah. they'd converted into a three-wheel. Um, you know, and there's my mother-in-law in the back way. Hi! You know, you guys, some of you guys may remember her from uh, oh, one of the early the one episodes. Yes. Okay. Yes. She, she was she's um, a motorcycle mama. Former um, uh, methadone maintenance clinic uh, supervisor and right. certified uh, social worker. She was on one of our earlier episodes. So go back and listen to it if you, if you want to hear from her directly. Um, yeah, so I don't know. It was kind of weird. It's always weird to see your mother-in-law on the back of a motorcycle, right? <laughs> so, I mean, she's like 70-something, 68 years old or something. And uh, But good for her, you know? She, she likes to get out and have some fun. So they came in the house and they visited for a bit. But, oh, that's cool. I was thinking yeah. like, man, when my in-laws come over and I'm by myself at the house, I'm like, oh, Oh, this is going to be awkward, you know, the whole time. <laughs> oh man, I, I like Erin's um, mom. She's good. She's good. Yeah, person. no, I, I love my my mother in law. And in fact, on Tuesday, because as you all know, October is you know my most expensive and stressful month because <laughs> it's my wife's birthday, my son's birthday, my mom's birthday, my anniversary, my brother's birthday. Jesus, I don't know how you survive and, uh, the month in one piece, man. I, I barely. I don't usually. And it's also another one of these times. I've talked about this before. You know, when the holiday season is upon us, um, that dread I used to have because I didn't have money to buy gifts, mm. because I maybe even couldn't drive to go do, be independent. Right. But like all those years, I that feeling of helpless, helplessness during like the holidays or during October. So when these times come around and I can handle it, it really, you know, I'm really grateful because... For so long that, I mean, it's still stressful, but I can at least, you know, like for, like we went out to dinner and I was able to take out, you know, um, my wife and kids and my mother-in-law came along to the mm -hmm. dinner and I, and I was able to it's get, great, right? It's empowering. You know, it's, it's like the reason that you get sober. Is yeah. It's something can, that simple to just yeah. be able to say, no, I've got it, mom. Thank you. You know? Yeah. Um, but uh, it's so tough with aging. Um, and it just got me thinking, I was really thinking about this a lot is our, you know, I have aging parents, um, you know, uh, they're in their late seventies and, uh, especially my mother-in-law cause she's alone. Um, 
her husband passed away about six years ago, a little bit more. Mm. And, and it's so hard, you know, because you get frustrated because they are clinging and they are kind of declining in certain ways. And yep. it's so easy to get like, oh, this man, <laughs> I can't believe that she's, you know, whatever. But, you know, and you, and you said, I was complaining to you about it. And you're like, well, you know what? They're not going to be there forever, which, of course, I, I know but it's easy to forget, yes. you know, until you're on the other side of it. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah but my, my mother died relatively young. She and I did not have the best relationship. Um, and then my dad passed away a few years ago. And, and, you know, it was very difficult with him the last few years. There was a lot of, um, you know, uh, back and forth with him about... Um, stuff that he was doing or not. He lived with us for a while and it ended up becoming an untenable situation. And, you know, there was a lot of complaining uh, back and forth. And then one day he just died unexpectedly. And so you, you got to make sure you keep those relationships as good as you can, because if you leave stuff unresolved, it'll, it'll eat away at you a little bit. So I've had yeah. some regrets about the way things were handled before. Yeah. Like I a- mean, that that's something I regret, the, the way that relationships sort of uh, ended. But yeah, you know. Yeah, the, but well, I mean, it ended with him dying. But it's, right, you know, I, there was a few things I wish I had said, and you don't want to, you know, before he died, and you don't want to have yourself in that situation, right? So. And do you remember, you know, before they passed on, um, feeling annoyed by them, and then do you know, like on a daily basis, you know, so when they're, <laughs> you know, so it puts us in this, and on top of it, there's this anxiety that you know I'm going to lose them, right? You know that these invincible people. Um, and I think that's something that we all deal with at middle age, you know, in the middle ages, um, are aging parents. And it's, um, you know, my friend Bill, who just moved to California, who's got a crazy addiction story that one day I'm going to get him on. Wait, this um, is the Bill yeah. from around here? Yep. He just moved? Uh, yeah, he went out, he's chasing his fortune or something. Oh, good for and, him. Um, you know, but he just lost his parents, even though they were in their late nineties. Right. Just to see the way that's affected him, mm-hmm. um, and so you know, it's kind of a downer subject, but um, it's something that we all are dealing with or have dealt with um, in these middle ages, as they say. Um, don't it always seem to go? You don't know what you got till it's gone. That's right. Uh, did you have anything else you wanted to cover before we moved on and called um, Aaron? Um, I don't think so. I mean, yeah. I mean, I wrote down a bunch of inane stuff yeah. about like what we did on Sunday. I mean, it was a soccer game. I have was, to, I, do people you know, really care? I don't know. I don't think so. You know, because <laughs> some of the one of the other things my uh, comment my friend made was, um, you know, guys, forty five minutes to get to the topic. Yeah. <laughs> and I sometimes I think I look at this and I'm uh, at the time ticking by and I'm like. Do people want to hear this shit? Like, I have no idea. Yeah, they, want, they keep listening. They you know, do. I mean, do they fast forward through this and then go to the go to the main topic because they think it's going to be like better? Yeah, maybe I don't, I don't know. know. Let us better? know. I, uh, let's not fix it if it ain't. It's not broken. So keep on keeping on. Yeah, man. Um, so anyway, with that, I think it's time to call uh, Aaron Moore. Okay. Um, oh wait, before you do that, what? Let's 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 do a little intro. Okay. On this topic. Because, I was thinking that. Because um, the, the movie that, that we're going to be talking about is The Last Stop, right? Directed by this fellow named Todd Nielsen. And, it, and it's about uh, the Elon school uh, specifically, but more broadly, it's sort of about the, t- the troubled teen industry and the, and the recovery, I put that in quotes, yeah. uh, message that is promulgated by these places, which is based on um, 
I would argue, some faulty um, ideas about how people recover. Um, you know, some of this comes out of uh, the Synanon yeah. um, recovery scene, which was developed by this guy in the 60s. I don't, do, do you go through that in some of here? In some uh, of this I stuff? do. Because yeah. I don't want to, you know, jump, jump ahead. But anyway, so, the, so these two guys made this movie called um, The Last Stop. And um, why don't you do a little bit on this since you, you, you did the outline on it. So right, well, I'm just talking off the top of my head. Like you said, it was the Elon School. Uh, it was a private, co-educational, and controversial residential behavior modification program and a right. therapeutic boarding school um, in Maine. Um, basically, the school was founded in 1970 by psychiatrist Gerald Davidson, invest, investor David Goldberg, and the Joseph Ritchie, who turned out to be like the main bad guy who like ran it yeah. and, and um, you know, rose to power. He was a former heroin addict who had worked with uh, young people in drug treatment facilities and who in 1979 um, actually bought a racetrack. So he was making so much money in these recovery schools that he bought a, a racetrack. Well, in, in 1975, uh, one of the doc- I, I listened to an interview with one of the documentary um, creators. And in 1975, he was making uh, $1,200 a month per body. Wow. Um, at a time when a new fully loaded Corvette was $6,800. And he had over Jeez. 250 people at Elan alone. Uh, so you multiply 250 by 1200 yeah, in 1975. He, like, he ran for office. Yeah. I mean, this guy was really living, living the life. But um, it was... <sighs> The school specialized in treating teenagers with behavioral problems. Right. Uh, and the program described as controversial humiliation was stated clearly as a therapeutic tool, uh, as is uh, following up on such intervention with encouragement and warm support. So this was one of these confrontation, and it goes back to, it was Synanon and Daytop right. were these extreme uh, extensions of 12-step programs. Uh, and then Erin, who was actually a part of Synanon, mm-hmm. or uh, was abused by them, uh, she's going to be able to speak on this a little bit better. But uh, Joe Ritchie, he went to Daytop, which is like one of these super conservative, um, I don't know if it's conservative, but like abusive places. He graduated there, he was working there, mm-hmm. and he thought it needed to be more, quote, therapeutic. So he's basically going with that kind of confrontation therapy and that you've got to break them down. Break the attic down in order to build them up. If you've never seen that in action, there's some scenes in the movie uh, that are just horrifying. It's basically you have a room full of of your co, you know, patients, if you want to call them that, uh, just screaming at somebody who's being yeah. made to stand in front of the room with a dunce hat on. Or was one girl who was. Uh, singled out for flushing tampons down the toilet. They made her wear like a crown of tampons on her 14th birthday while they all screamed at her. And I mean, to me, that, that sounds like fucking traumatic. It doesn't sound like therapy in any, any stretch of the imagination, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, and, it's just abusive. And, and when I, and I'm just letting her know we're calling her in a second. Right. Um, you know, and the problem with it is all of these, these, um, modalities of this abuse it sort of just grew with usage and nobody was qualified enough at any point of the time of this evolving to say that's not right right you know the foundation of their recovery program was you know it included like if you have a bad seed it doesn't grow well Mm -hmm. you know it's um you know they they didn't have 
the proper training or understanding of addiction to build a program that wouldn't be abusive. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it just grew out of this, you know, the theory of bottom and, um, and all of that. And it's just, um, you know, and it's really our spooky season horror story. I mean, this is a house of horrors, uh, the abuse. And when I wanted to talk about this, the first thing you said was, Oh, I don't want to do another teen, you know, um, teen, uh, addiction facility abuse, you know, type of things. But, Really, um, it speaks to a larger issue of the way, you know, addiction and recovery, you know, like mental illness, has been basically dealt with differently than all other sicknesses. Right. I mean, imagine this was sort of a treatment for, for, for cancer, you know. <laughs> you know, parents send their kids to these places and they don't visit them. They, they, don't, uh, they don't have any sort of a sense of what goes on there. Um, there's very slick um, marketers who will take your phone call when you call to to try and get somebody into a program like this and, and convince you that this is what you need or your kid's going to end up in jail or or, or dead. Um, it's really it's really unconscionable and and the fact that there is no scientific basis for any of this yeah. treatment uh, and the guy that started Synanon that all this flowed out of was. Uh, he was a charismatic speaker at AA meetings. He had, he had never had a drug problem. Yeah. And he just decided that he was going to create this modality of treating people by breaking down their, their egos, by having people yell at yeah. them in a room. And then, in theory, they would build themselves back up somehow. And you know what? But I saw this all the time when I was at... You know, Remember, I was court-mandated at these outpatient uh, mm-hmm. places and inpatient. And... You know, I'd say six out of 10 employees who were running groups or even in charge were just former addicts who got a certification type right. of thing. These were not actual clinicians or, you know, who were necessarily trained. And because of that, you know, some were great and some were terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it doesn't mean they can't be good and help people, but it's not consistent because they don't have consistent training. Sure. Um, And then that can lead to these abuses. I mean, it was even more compounded at a place like Elan because, you know, you'd have the the group of uh, newcomers and, and, you know, kids at the bottom, and then they would elevate these kids into positions of authority and power over the other kids. And they even had like a security wing and yeah. it was like a group of people who would be responsible for making sure people didn't run away or and enforce the discipline and you know you take a whole bunch of kids who are like 14 to, to to 20 with like mental health issues and give them that level of authority over other kids it's yeah. a recipe for abuse and disaster and that's exactly what happened yeah and it, it's reminiscent of like scientology you know fascist regimes where you have the citizens who are being abused by the leaders telling on each other. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's, it's, it's sick. Um, but uh, in order to shed some more light on this, uh, uh, we're going to give Erin Moore a call. Um, she has experience uh, with Synanon and being in one of these abusive uh, recovery cults. Um, and just going to call her now. Should I call her? You should call her. Yikes. It's loud. It is loud. No, I can't hear anything. Hello. Oh, hi, Erin. Erin Moore. Welcome back to the show. Before uh, we called you, just so you know, we did a little bit of background on the Elon School, so we don't have to like go over all of it, and you know. But it, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, uh, these the way that it it mirrored. It took Daytop and um, and Synanon and just took it to a whole other 
level. So I've got Aaron Moore on the phone. Uh, we're discussing the last stop. Um, did you get a chance to, uh, I mean, what did you think of the last stop um, when you watched it? Uh, well, I certainly, it was triggering um, because, of, you know, those are all things, uh, most of it was uh, stuff that we were subject to at Phoenix House, um, which was a very similar and actually one of the uh, predecessors to um, Elon School, a very similar mm-hmm. program. So that it was that. It, it was, um, I think, for people who don't know this is out there, I can imagine that it would be quite shocking. Um, uh, it was very, very emotional. Yeah, I was actually worrying about that a little bit. After we decided to do this subject, I thought, oh, you know, is this, you know, going to upset Aaron? And so I was um, thinking about that. But then since you had talked about it, you know, with us, when, you know, when you first uh, when you first came on, I thought, you know, that you would be comfortable with it. But was that really, you know, how difficult was that for you? And I'm sorry that I didn't think of that before we started. But. Oh, well, no, not difficult, actually. You know, it is something that I have done a lot of uh, therapy and, and trauma work over, and I'm incredibly uh, awake to it. Mm-hmm. I, I believe at one point um, before I was able to even verbalize uh, my own experience, I imagine it, it could have been something that I wasn't prepared for, but I, I was prepared. So. so maybe we should just cycle back a little bit and, and talk about your experience uh, and how you found yourself at one of these places, because how parents sort of wind up sending their kids to a place like this is something that I've had a little bit of experience with recently, and it's and it's really weird and insidious how how these uh, organizations reach out and ha- and how they have um, connections in all of the um, with psychiatrists, with psychologists, with with uh, the court system. Uh, but maybe maybe uh, hearing a little bit about your story again would be would be helpful. Sure. Well, in my case, I was um, in in need of, of drug treatment. Uh, that that much was clear, and my mother had gotten a recommendation from a like top love parent support group she was going to that uh, Phoenix House would be a good option. And Phoenix House was the first um, uh, program that, that was developed based on Synanon and was directly started by a member of Synanon. So it was it's kind of the root of, of the rest of these programs because they were all duplicated after, after that. Um, and after it had been, you know, the, the lead was buried. It was validated in some circles as a, a valid um, a treatment modality because the person who started it, who had been a member of Synanon, was also a psychiatrist by that point. Mm. So, yeah, so it was, it, by the time I ended up in Phoenix House, it had been in existence for about 20, 20 to 25 years. Um, and so it was just kind of well known as a drug treatment program. Um, my mother took me there. I, I wasn't kidnapped or any of the other things that they talk about in the Elon 
uh, documentary, which most of the programs did use what they call goons or, or whatever, um, to actually take children out of their bed. Or, 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 as they, or, as they, they they, or as they tried to sell it to my wife and I when we were kind of looking sort of at this transport services they call oh, them. transport <laughs> you know yeah, they don't they don't call them uh, goons middle of the night goons but transport services you can pay extra for the ones that don't use zip ties and oh, stuff like that yeah, really it's really That's really weird frightening yeah. I think yeah. it, it's amazing that um, there were all of these copycat. Uh, programs like if something was really abusive and didn't like it this must have worked on some level in order for people to say i'm going to take that model and make it more extreme and better i don't know i think it's weird that it's just a community of sadists it's crazy (laughs) it sounds insane but it kept getting perpetuated i don't know well i think it it doesn't all fall under the umbrella of like confrontation therapy like that that this has in the scared straight stuff and like this has yeah. some kind of uh this was really accepted by our society for some reason yeah um it's, it's really interesting um and yes so, they called it um uh, encounter group right in, right in, uh, phoenix house wow. like there's a whole handbook of how to participate in them and so you got so you basically went willing and your mom takes you there and uh and what was it like when you when you like arrived and kind of realized where you were well, uh, the day, you know, something about the documentary really stood out and it was that, um, there was a, a woman that was talking about like her first day there and how she heard like screaming and yelling. And yeah. mm-hmm. that sort of was my experience. I, um, my first day they were having an encounter group and those were scheduled, you know, throughout the week, primarily scheduled unless they had to do like, uh, as they also talked about in the documentary, kind of like an on the spot, like, all right, guys, everybody into the classroom. And we're, you know, there's, there's, uh, obviously something going on within the group that we're going to address it. Um, is that the general, group. is that when they said general meeting? Yeah. It's like okay. a general meeting house meeting. Yeah. Um, and that would be more of a general, yeah, there's, there's a couple things that went on with our mayor, but, um, the first day when I was in this encounter group, uh, I didn't know. I mean, I had been through group therapy for years at that point because I was 16. I probably was in psychiatric facilities of various types, mostly shorter term from about the age of 12. So I was really familiar with circling up as a group. But what happened next, (laughs) I was not prepared for. And that was, it almost sounded like a pack of dogs because the the counselor would say, okay, go. And then people would, I mean, everybody in the group was like screaming across the room, across to other people. And the way that would work was that the counselors would usually have predetermined based on the, um, the reporting system throughout the rest of the week that we use to um, write a slip or drop a slip on, somebody in particular that we had a problem with their behavior. Um, if they had enough on somebody, it was like voting, except like you didn't want to win this vote. Right. So, um, so the way, and, you know, so if, yeah, the way they had it in, in the movie, you would, you would, there were these little pieces of paper mm. and you would write yeah. the name of the person. And then there were four or five things that you could circle that were, uh, 
you know, the, the, the problem that you had with that person and then you drop it into a box mm. and then I guess the, the yep. counselor. Sort of like improv, yeah, night, you know. You're right. Like, the counselor some, like, yeah, counts yeah. him up and says, oh, this, yeah, like <laughs> this one's been, uh, been problematic this week. So then they put that person in the front or in the center and then they just have at it. That's, <laughs> it's, it's not really in the front or center. You didn't necessarily know. Now you would get some feeling like you were going to get it this week, especially if you had been a dick. Mm. or gone against rules or you were just you know with with kids in that age group particularly like we tend to single you know bullying is not a new thing um and so sometimes there's just a target there's you know that that people just don't like and they get it a lot of weeks um but so you know sometimes you'd have an idea sometimes not but you know it was once the counselors could kind of see which way the wind was blowing, like who was getting yelled at the most or whatever, um, then they would say, okay, Aaron, uh, the game is on you. The game is what they called it because that's what they called it, Synanon, mm. um, that Chuck Dietrich had uh, created that system. That's uh, so ominous, uh, too. That, counseling. That's like a really oh, yeah. ominous, like the game. The game is know? on you. Right. <laughs> Spooky, spooky Halloween month. So yes, it it was really um, something. And then they would let people go one at a time at you um, to say what they had to say. Now, the one thing was that, uh, and I noticed in the Elon documentary and other reportings about Elon's school, that it seemed like they there was a couple of there were several rules. And you guys, what I have for you, you're gonna love it. Because I've got receipts, like I've got copies of the encounter slips, like a whole sheet of them. Oh, I've wow. got handbook pages. I've got the rule book for this from Phoenix House from when I was there. But wow, um, and we can share those on the page too. That would maybe, be cool. yeah, yeah. Logistically, you might think it. I don't know. Dep- kind of depends. Um, but I have those, and I'm willing to show you what wow. encounter slips look like for us. But they, um, so, yeah, so, like, you couldn't, um, some of the rules, like, no cursing. Cursing wasn't allowed ever by any of us, ever. Not even, like, what they called um, uh, dope theme cursing, <laughs> which was to, any that was, like, anything that was, like, trying to get around the rules where you would say, darn or heck. We couldn't say shit like that. <laughs> we couldn't say shit. Uh, we couldn't say shoot. We couldn't say you know, anything like that. Wow. But so you couldn't do that. You couldn't quote unquote attack someone's inborn dignity, which isn't uh, okay. That, that's what they did the whole time is attack their <laughs> dignity. That's interesting. Right. So, right. So, and what they meant by that was something that you couldn't help. Mm. Like your weight, your uh right, if you um, had a limp. your race. Yeah, yeah. Things like that. That you know, other other dignity on the fucking table. Right. So you were you allowed to curse during the game when they're screaming? No. 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 Okay. So you had you to scream not. in someone's face, but you had to be very careful. You had to yeah. watch your language. You so. are a very yes. Watch your language, guys. Yeah, yeah you're just like carrying them. this person down to the studs, <laughs> but watch your language. Yeah. Watch that shit. So the other thing, um, if you were the person receiving on the receiving end of the game, you could not make any facial gesture at all. Like you couldn't react is what they called it. No reacting. You, um, if, and that went for during that time. If a staff member was giving you at any point throughout the day, what they called a haircut, which was a talking to screaming at. Mm. 
it you sounds their breath on your face, you could not react. It so, sounds like military. It reminds me of what you see in like a Full Metal Jacket with the drill sergeant screaming, you know, and those yeah. scared straight things. So yeah, it sounds like they're taking a lot from that's yeah. the sort of playbook uh, of that abusive stuff. It sounds it sounds incredibly emotionally healthy and supportive. Right. Uh, so and it, and yeah, well, and it was the playbook because straight. Uh, Straight Ink, all of that, that was created after uh, Phoenix Out. So in, in addition to to this, into the game, was there any other uh, therapy provided, like any kind of um, psychiatric care provided or, or any kind of 12, yeah, was it a normal 12-step 12 12 step, uh, going on there or... Or was it all? So we had a psychiatrist um, that we would individually see once a week. She was, by all accounts, uh, she was one of the few um, certified, accredited, or educated in this area um, staff members that that we had. And we saw her maybe once a week. Outside of that, almost nobody was credentialed in any other way. Um, You know, we had other forms of their therapy but none of them were actual like valid therapeutic tools that are recognized as as healthy or or mainstream so it wasn't um i was a little confused because like daytop and synanon sort of grew out of uh 12-step groups right but they does it it doesn't sound like they stuck to they didn't like go to a like a lot of re, re rehabs will send people to aa meetings basically um, but did they mm-hmm. were they doing that at all with uh, in the Phoenix House or like the Elon School? Where they when you th- had been there, yeah, when you had been there for a certain amount of time, and it, we're talking many, many, many months, um, and got to a certain phase, like they had various phases and levels, just like with a lot of programs, a lot of valid programs have phases where you can't, you know, you'll get a pass out. Um, they would take us uh, rotate, you know, kind of rotate the group in vans to. Once or twice a week, they would have a night where they had an NA meeting that was about um, about 30 miles away, was like the nearest real civilized um, town, and uh, it was on a, a Native American reservation, actually, kind of interesting, but um, that was, in, but you, I mean, that was maybe a couple times a month at most <laughs> that you would end up being in that group. So, so their program jived basically with twelve steps. It was just um, um, no. a little more extreme. I mean, <laughs> with a little more. It seems no, like, I mean, like literally, there was not not anything like. I mean, I, I could see how it, uh, there were some similar concepts, like truth telling, like mm. you know, like the concept, like the end goal of like you know being an, an improved person. That was the premise. But being someone very familiar with the 12-step concept, I can see how it was mutated into right. these things, but but I couldn't even say that they're similar. And, and the other uh, aspect of this, you know, the brainwashing, was the way that they organized um, the different parts of the group. Like they had, if you were new, you were scrubbing mm-hmm. floors and toilets, and then they had another... Uh, level of um, clients, let's say, who were had graduated to watching them, mm-hmm. and then they had right. another one watching them, and um, right. they were like telling on each other. They had something yes. called the incident book. Um, yes. And and what was the incident book exactly? 
Well, uh, you know, we didn't call it that, but basically it was, um, you know, we had these people that would become um, what they called motivators. <laughs> and they were the, you know, people that might be walking around with a clipboard um, supervising this cleaning. And I mean, when, you know, would you, I mean, none of that is, is uh, exaggerated in any way. Like it was, um, you know, with a toothbrush in the crevices of a toilet, like there, you weren't allowed, you know, the, like anything else was half-assing it. Um, and then, yeah, so basically it was that, you know, the more that you were looking for flaws in your peers and reporting them, of course, the more virtuous you are, mm. which is, you know, kind of the gist of most, you know, organizational or institutional structures, especially as they become unhealthy. Um, you know, you can't have enough eyes from the people at the top to, you know, to, yeah. And it reminds like the prison, you know, Stanford prison, uh, experiment or something uh, right. right and it reminds me of what you hear about cults like um scientology and you hear like the lower uh, rung people who you know basically everybody's telling on everyone else also in like communist yeah. russia in the, in the 80s you know that kind of thing and they had three m- main rules you know that they talked about uh, on the documentary, they said no drugs, no sex, and no violence, and like that. Those were the three big no-nos. But wasn't no physical uh, violence, but, obviously. Yeah, but there was a couple of people who were who were beaten to death in Iran. They uh, did the ring, right? I, yeah. Oops. Did we lose her? Yeah, lost her. I think we lost her. Um, Hold on, back. we'll be right back. We, yeah, I don't know. Somebody <laughs> out there doesn't want us talking about this. We were just... <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't get me started. I'll um, start Spies. We well, were, the, uh, so the... the uh, I guess one person was definitely beaten to death. Another girl disappeared up there. And, and of course, the famous case of what, what went on up there is that Michael Skakel, right. who was one of the Kennedy yeah. cousins, who supposedly confessed to killing the neighbor... Uh, Moxley, I think her name was. Yeah, but yeah, uh, Moxley. He, he admitted it at uh, Elon. At Elon, while he was having the shit kicked out of him by like five or six right. people. So right. you know, so the 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 person who who did this documentary when uh, I listened to an interview with him, and he saying, you know, I would have confessed to killing, you know, Kennedy if you know, just to make him stop beating the crap out of me. So I don't know how much that no violence rule was actually followed up there. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, we did not now that, that the physical violence toward each other, um, that wasn't allowed. It wasn't even part of our group therapy. Like some of the cults, like, like Osho's cult, um, oh, out yeah. from the West coast from that wild, wild, uh, country documentary, right. they showed something, you know, they depicted like that with some bats and shit like that. We didn't even do that, um, but there's certainly, like, one of the things that ended up getting the facility with, that I was in finally closed down in, like, 2015 was a violent incident that included, like, group fighting. Mm. And um, so it did happen, but it wasn't, uh, it was against the rules. Well, I mean, they did, what they talked about at, at Elon, I don't know if they did that as, at Phoenix House, something called The Ring, where basically they would form... Uh, a circle around, I guess, the person who's the offender, 
or whatever. And they would wear boxing gloves and basically just fight until they were knocked out. And they would have like rounds and the bell would ring. But it was like 12 people against uh, one. Um, and yeah. They, yeah, they were saying that their reasoning was it was to show that person who they said would be like a bully. So if the person was being a bully or they said they were, then they would get the shit kicked out of them in the ring just to learn. Uh, I think Joe Ritchie said that it was so they would learn that violence is futile, like that they can't solve <laughs> it with violence. So. None of this is based on any science <laughs> yeah, like, whatsoever. Where, where did he come up oh, with this? is just gosh, some, some no. crazy guy. Uh, Ritchie never graduated high school, I don't think. No. Uh, but he liked to cash checks and come up with theories. None of them, you know. But he, but he had a psychiatrist as a partner. Right. Yeah, like how did that happen? Well, how that, did he, this guy, you know. Well, that's what gets you validate. You know, that's, you've got to have somebody signing the prescription, right? Um, that's kind of how Simonon uh, morphed into anything else at all was with Phoenix House having a valid, you know, a, a person who after they had left Simonon became a psychiatrist and, um, and, you know, or simultaneously was spending time there and, he ended up, about, you know, presenting it as this, like, innovative, uh, you know, what they call therapeutic community. That was the first origin of, of that term, therapeutic community, was the Phoenix House. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, if we've learned anything yeah. from the opiate e epidemic, it's that morally compromised doctors are everywhere. So I, I suppose with enough yes. money, you can get a psychiatrist to say any therapy is worthwhile. Y yeah, well, sure. And if you're a member of a cult and you're the psychiatrist and <laughs> you want to find a way, I mean, you know, by that time, by the time, uh, I mean, they were just looking for a way to validate this as a program method. I mean, there, there is no science technically, but if you went on Google Scholar and looked up therapeutic community or Phoenix house, it is the science. Um, wow. it, that program was used that way because they buried the lead between Synanon and Phoenix house. Mm -hmm. Um, for a lot of years. So people did not draw the comparison the way that we can see it today, or, you know, uh, there's only really one instance I saw of Mitchell Rosenthal, who was the founder of Phoenix house, um, even, uh, admitting that he had spent time at Synanon, that he had been a member and it's in a, um, an interview he gave to a student for their, I believe their thesis thesis or something so mm. um that was the first time i saw it like in his words like oh shit because i've always known it and as a matter of fact you know i'm in contact with a staff member that was a staff member back when i was at phoenix house who has been willing to talk to me about this and um you know i asked her and i hoped the answer was no but i asked her did you guys know that this was like a like this, this, this program was based on sin and unconnected in that way or anyway. And she said, yeah, no, we always knew. Well, didn't yeah. sin and eventually got shut down by the IRS and, uh, yes. there was all kinds of weird people who were trying to rat out the organization were, um, were threatened and you it's know, just followed like by guys with guns. It's yeah, very much so. Threatened right? like right. assaulted with a rattlesnake. Yeah, um, that's right. That's, that's the story. <laughs> yeah. I'm Paul of, yeah. Morant. Wow, yeah, we stuck a rattlesnake uh, in the guy's mailbox. Yeah. Were Were you worried yeah. about that, Aaron? Because you you broke away from Synanon, uh, and then you 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 know you write a blog about it. You're working on a book, mm -hmm. and you've spoken openly about it. Have you ever been approached or threatened to not speak about it? I have 
not. I have been admonished by uh, some of the people that were my peers uh, there for doing so because there are a lot of people that that, that um, programming doesn't go away. And uh, I certainly know that because there's, um, they're a pretty powerful organization still, you know, they 90% of their income is from corrections contracts. Mm. And uh, if people really understood that and that started to become um, a problem, then I imagine, uh, sure, all bets are off. You know, it could be like a bad 90s movie about, you know, or 80s movie uh, like you know, any, any of the ones where someone is a whistleblower. Yeah. Um, so they, but I feel like it's public enough where, you know, it, that would be pretty risky of them. Let, let's talk about that for a minute because, um, you know, when my son was having some problems a couple of years ago, my wife and I started, you know, we, we didn't really know where to turn for him. Um, so we started looking around for options and we're, th- you know, we were working with a psychiatrist and, and he was thinking, well, maybe he needs to go to a wilderness program, you know, for a couple of weeks to get his head straightened out. And so we start researching these wilderness programs and we start researching these therapeutic communities. Um, I don't know if anywhere at the level of Elan's, a lot of them purported to have more um, experience with dual diagnosis cases like, um, you know, mental uh, problems with substance abuse, but but the the one thing that I thought was really interesting is any of the places that we made contact with. Um, invariably, the person that we spoke to on the phone was a former resident or patient or whatever, mm-hmm. and and it got me thinking like the, the Stockholm syndrome must be so intense uh, mm-hmm. because these guys were not only. Um, um, salesmen, but they were really good advocates for the program. And I, I, and, you know, as we learned a little bit more about what went on in this industry and, and kind of came to the conclusion that this was not something that we wanted our kid anywhere near, um, it, it still kind of blew my mind that, that how positive some of these folks were speaking about their own experiences and, and how it straightened out their lives and everything. And, and they were very good salesmen. What, what do you think is behind that? Programming. Um, I would say that until until about six years ago, um, I would have said the same. You know, I don't know that I would have given it a glowing review, but the script is always the same. But they saved my life um, because that's the way I had to look at it um, in order. You know, I just and I didn't process it, and I didn't talk about it for about twenty years at all. You know, I moved across yeah. the country um, after, you know, after the excommunication portion. Uh, within a few years, I moved across the country. And in my new life as a, a suburban mom, it didn't, uh, just didn't fit to, like, have, you know, the conversation at, you know, cocktail parties or anything. Right. Yeah, meeting. right. And so I was able to not deal with it. But if it ever did come up, and it was only ever if my mother and I talked about it for whatever reason... Um, we would, you know, basically I would say, but it saved my life. And some of that was because my mother had some, had some remorse and right. I felt very, you know, she mm. also had a, a strong victim, uh, complex. So <laughs> if I brought it up as being a problem for me, then it would somehow be me attacking her or something. So mm. I noticed, um, uh, when the, the end of the documentary, they actually start, basically like what what happened next and they have some of the um 
former residents like reflecting on their experience. And I and that stood out to me when the guy who made the documentary was being interviewed and he said, you know, was it all bad? And he really thinks back and he goes, no, you know, did it help me? Uh, I think maybe it could have, you know, and they all kind of, you know, sort of have that view like, yeah, it was really horrible and all this horrible stuff was done to me. But, you know, the relationships I made or (laughs) there was one or two, even the clinician or the people working there who they interviewed later. They're looking back and I go, yeah, the ring was probably a bad thing, but we were really, you know, doing the for the right reasons, you know. So there's this sort of overall, like, I don't know if it's a whitewashing or if it's just a, hey, we have to accept it. So we may as well accept it kindly or something. I don't know. It's very weird. Yeah, I could say the same thing. I could say that there were things, there were, there were positive uh, outcomes in, in, you know, in general in my life as a result of being there. And I mean, there compared to the trauma it caused, I'm not sure I would have traded it, but like I had been uh, kicked out of high school as a junior about nine months before I went there. And I was, you know, I took the proficiency exam and basically had what quantified to like a GED, but they forced you to go to school and finish if you had diploma work to do. And I did that. So I got my diploma, you know, like in ways like that. Sh- sure. Um, yeah. You know, there were, there were some positive, um, hmm. uh, positive lessons there, but I think they could be learned another way. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, I would have been just fine with my GED um, or whatever, you know, compared to, the amount of trauma that occurred there. Well, I would love to see a study of how many people uh, in the intervening years that came out of a place like that actually stayed sober or ended up having to There have. are studies. There are. Yeah. And what is the... There are studies. Yeah, I, I couldn't tell you. You know, basically most of them are inconclusive. Um, their rate is not any better than any other program out there, and that's a fact. Wow, so it's um, like... Their it's... rate is not even as good as AA. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, um, and that—that's what you'll find in most of the studies because you're trying to quantify something that it's really hard to track. First of all, we're not easy to track as a population. Uh, people with right. addictive or mental health, or you know, any of that. Um, a lot of us die a lot. I had peers that were dead within a year of leaving there. I had there was one guy that was there. Um, we were there at the same time for a brief period of time. He is. Uh, he was sentenced last year as a spree killer. He's not a serial killer because I don't. I think he needed to kill like one more person within that time frame. But Jeez. his mm. crimes were so horrific. Um, he, yeah, he actually got worse after being there in general in life. Like he was just a regular stoner kid who got busted smoking weed by his parents and sent yeah. to Phoenix out. There, there was some of that. Um uh, in the uh, documentary, some of the former uh, clients were basically, they said they were mixing in these sort of low risk teens whose parents just were kind of like, they're misbehaving yeah. and right. sent them. And then you had actual, you know, like wards of the state also staying together. Well, f- yeah, not just wards of the state, but we had, um, I would say most, and especially of the male population we had there, uh, because it was, we had about 42 to 45. Um, residents at any given time, about half and half. Um, most of the male population, they were 
they were, it was a sentencing alternative. Most of them had um, gang activity. A couple of them had uh, records uh, as a juvenile as like with attempted murder, things like that. Um, and they were, uh, as, instead of going to in, like the level up from juvenile hall, right? Like juvenile prison, whatever that is in every area, they sent them here. I remember they interviewed one person uh, who said that, you know, who was, you know, sent there because she had, you know, some kind of minor drug issue. And she said she learned so much more about how to how to get into trouble there than she ever would have found at at a local high school. Well, that's what they they say about like drug rehab. It's like junkie college. Yeah. Um, Well, what I last thing I wanted to do, you know, I was trying to think like, what, what can we learn from this like all of this stuff happened people were traumatized abused this was allowed to go on there was even a case where the judge was getting kickbacks it was in the newspaper um there was a reporter who came on the documentary who wrote the story on the judge who was taking money for sending people there i mean how how do we prevent this from happening in the future you know is it still going on i don't know i think it is i don't know if daytop is still functioning um, but like, Phoenix how can houses, these, it's alive and well. So what can we do um, to stop this kind of thing? Because recovery can be so beautiful. It can be so loving, you know, but there's this, you know, other approach that seems to get, you know, some support. And um, I don't know how to uh, how to shut it down or if we can. Well, I would say if someone's looking like in their little, you know, part of the the universe and how, you know, there, there are a lot of, um, initiatives breaking code silence, which, uh, is the one that Paris Hilton is involved in, um, and various others. There's, she's been in the media again this week, um, releasing statements and information about how to, uh, advocate. I would say, um, when you see a petition to, you know, shut one of these places down, sign it. Um, if you, you know, if you go on Twitter, you'll find, you know, and, and just look up the hashtag breaking code silence, which by the way, I'm not affiliated specifically. Um, although I do, um, help, you know, I do some advocacy in, in amplifying that message. When you see TikTok, which are out there about the troubled teen industry, hashtag PTI is usually what you'll find things like that under, um, you know, amplify those, those voices. Um, listen to people when they talk about, that drug treatment, you know, that they had experiences like this in drug treatment because um, it may be that person tells you something that later down the road, say you have your own child and you mm. hear, oh shit, like that place wasn't so good. Well, and, you that, know? and that was sort of how I ended up, my wife and I ended up, uh, you know, making a decision that this really was a little too off the wall. Um, you know, I, I'm a Redditor, so I got into the, there's a subreddit on the troubled teen industry. So if you, oh, yeah. if you, if you go into there and then you put in the name of the facility mm. that is yeah. currently being marketed to you, you can, <laughs> invariably, there's five or six stories of kids who were sent there who have very negative opinions yeah. uh, about what went on. And, uh, and it's also a supportive community for people that have experienced that, uh, well, I guess yes. that's the that's sort of the answer. It's to speak out, and they have a spreadsheet. Yeah. You know, they they collect information from people about the various places they might have been that they aren't aware they're, that are under the radar. Even so, yeah. Yeah. at the top of those groups, you'll find spreadsheets of these places and the type of abuses and such. 
Right. So we're getting the word out. I mean, that's what we're trying to do here. Um, uh, Aaron, and I love you guys for it. I yeah. think it's awesome. Now, well, where can uh, our, our listeners find your, uh, you've got a blog where you write about these yeah. kinds of things. Um, and where, was that fallingphoenix.com? It is. Yes, it is. I got it right. Um, <laughs> and I'll provide, um, I'll actually post some photos of the, uh, you know, documentation of like from the handbook. Um, you want to see a cute little encounter slip? Um, wow what it looks like uh, to write someone up. Uh, I won't write you guys up, but I will. <laughs> <laughs> I will post those things so you can see with your own eyes, like this is, you know, the, the rules for encounter groups. You'll, you will die. You will die wow. when you read the way that we were told um, to speak to each other in, in writing. <laughs> wow. That'd be cool. So find Erin. She's going to, she's on our private uh, Facebook group. If you join up there, she's a moderator. And uh, you have any questions for her, also you can find her at fallingphoenix.com. And with that, I'm going to say thank you very much for another exciting edition of Get Smart. Uh, and, thank um, you, guys. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Great to talk to you. Sorry we didn't get to catch up yeah. more, but... Um, no, it's good. <laughs> right day, man. We got right know. to business today. But um, all right, yeah. Aaron. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> I just said bye. <laughs> you did. Uh, <laughs> is there a filter that can remove that? Um, so um, you know, I that subject matter uh, makes me so uncomfortable. I don't know. I yeah. think there's a better way to say it. You know, some things that we talk about I just flow out of me, and I, you know, I feel good about what I think about it. And for some reason, with this subject, I'm like, I'm flustered. I'm like, I don't know what to say first. I don't know how to like cover it. Because it's, uh, I don't know, it's weird. It's one of those things. Well, I mean, there's so much to it. The fact that it was so wholehearted, this, this methodology was so wholeheartedly embraced by um, politicians and judges and the court system without any evidence to back it up. You know, this but, was, you yeah. know, there's pictures of Ronald Reagan with the with the Synanon folks and the, you know. It's crazy. And, and uh and it seems like it hasn't really changed, you know. I mean, these things are still, I mean, I think today, I mean, part of this you can, Trace to the fact that there's a huge financial incentive to for people to to create these kinds of places, and and yeah. the courts are willing to send people there. And and you did mention the the um, the issue of those two judges in Pennsylvania, yeah, who, uh, Maria, what's yeah. her name? Anyway, she may be a guest on the podcast in a couple of weeks. Anyway, oh, the, um, the journalist who wrote about the um, right. right, but but you know, I don't know if you guys recall the news story where. A couple of years ago, two judges in Pennsylvania ended up going to prison because they had a kickback uh, s- situation going on with some of these uh, troubled teen industry places and wilderness programs where the judges would send these kids there. And these are kids that very minor broke very minor laws right. in Pennsylvania. And they would be sent for 90 days to, to one of these places and the judge would get a big chunk of change off of it. You yeah. Know? And that's something to think about. You know, um, you hear these stories all the time where a kid who's like low risk you know, ends up going to juvenile detention, like yeah. a, a juvenile detention center. They basically get better at being a criminal and it, you know, makes them worse type right. of thing. And this type of thing, we see this all the time with judges sending people to certain rehabs mm-hmm. or certain facilities. So this is going on right now. And I guess it's, you know, all about judicial oversight. Well, I mean, um, yeah. And, and the financial incentives, because, you know, where did I see, maybe it was in the uh, the, the documentary or it was in the interview I heard where they, they 
what they do is when they first make contact with a the parent, they do what they call it a forensic investigation of the wallet yeah. to make sure yes. that there's enough money, you know, and, and, uh, a lot of these places are not covered by insurance. So, that, so rehabs that, like that too. I feel yeah. like there's so many parallels between, you know, the horror that happens at like Sin yeah. and some of the stuff I experienced being sold certain rehabs when mm-hmm. I was at certain stages in either like outpatient or being moved to another facility, you could see like when they had uh, a rehab that they were getting a kickback from, right. the way that they would push it, um, <laughs> right. you know, against all practical, you know, reasoning, you know, they would, you know, and it was just very disturbing, but something just to be aware of, you know, I guess awareness is our... Awareness um, is one thing. I mean, the, the, something that would change the situation, a couple things, you know, I was thinking about this. The first thing I would argue, you know, universal health care. So you take the financial mo- motivation out of it. And right. You treat mental health and substance abuse issues the same as you would any other medical problem. Right. Yeah. You put those two things together and these places would cease to exist. One yeah. would only hope. Right. Um, so we've got uh, recovery in the news coming up. Um, oh, are we going to be right back after these words? We'll be right back after these words. And we're back. Um, yeah, so what is it time for? I think that it's time for recovery, recovery. in the news. Yeah! All right. Recovery in the news. Recovery in the news. Recovery in the news. Motherfucker. <laughs> So, uh, speaking of questionable uh, treatment methodologies for mm. people with substance abuse disorders, this week's story comes from the Hindustan Times, uh, <laughs> the old gray lady of India. Hindu, um, Hindustan. Yes. Uh, and the uh, headline is, Caging Drunkards Imposing Fines, the Nat Community's Experiment in uh, Gujarat to Fight the Menace. I love the Nat Community. The Nat Community. They're my favorite community. This is sort of the Nat Community this also, is, right? This is the... Uh, Anyway, apparently in a bid to fight the menace of alcoholism, the Nat community in some villages of Gujarat has adopted a social experiment, caging and fining those found in an inebriated state. (laughs) The idea of setting up a makeshift cage for drunkards was first floated by the community in uh, Motipura village of Ahmedabad. What is a Ahmedabad district? What is a Nat community? I think it's a perhaps a, a small ethnic group. I don't within, know uh, oh, within India. Yeah. Uh, people caught drunk were incarcerated for the night in a makeshift cage and a fine of twelve hundred. I don't know what that symbol means, <laughs> but twelve hundred somethings was Rupees. imposed on them. Uh, the rep- apparently it was successful, Nat, because. Oh. The method was replicated in 24 villages uh, that had a sizable number from the Nat community with high liquor consumption uh, in a dry state with a strong prohibition law. So there was, it was already a dry state. Yeah. There was already a strong prohibition law. Uh, right. People went out and got drunk anyway. They, so what are you going to do with that? Well, what you have to do is you have to put them in a makeshift cage. Well, as you know, I am a supporter of the Nat community. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't speak for the Nat community, no. but for this Nat, I think that it's wrong to cage uh, uh, inebriated people. I mean, the community has claimed that the move's been effective um, mm. as more members are being dissuaded from consuming liquor and a lesser number of people are being caught every year. 
Well, they started this in 2017, which is a few years ago. So um, you'd say it's a deterrent. Well, first they just had the fine, and that wasn't enough of a deterrent. So they started uh, building uh, temporary cages for people. Well, uh, you know, it has. Imagine they did that here. I think it should be tried. I think you know it's like a harm reduction. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's harm reduction. You take them, yeah, put them in a cage, put them in a cage, and um, a fine. You know, what percentage of those people don't drink? A hundred because they're locked up. Sadly, there was no uh, picture. Uh, to accompany the article because <laughs> some good drunk guy locked <laughs> in a cage. Yeah, I wonder if they put it on a cart and wheel it around downtown with somebody walking after you going, shame, shame. Yeah. Well, you know, we do have the drunk tank. Um, we do, which is sort of the U.S. equivalent yeah. of the of the makeshift cage. But um, there's plenty of drunk people who are not being locked in there. So no. maybe that's something we should consider. Anyway, um, that's... Uh, recovering the news. Yeah. Man. I can tell when I'm not hitting my notes for that song. Um, I feel like I'm under the weather. You have a little, uh, I feel a little like frog I, in your throat. I'm, I'm not there. hitting the, the yeah. notes as easily, man. Um, sorry, sorry, guys. Sorry. Week in Weird. This Week in Weird by Tim Banal. Unearthed recording alleges that Einstein was enlisted to examine Roswell wreckage. <laughs> in a recently unearthed recording of an interview conducted nearly 30 years ago, a former assistant to Albert Einstein alleges that the famed scientist was enlisted to examine the Roswell wreckage, including the E.T. occupants of the downed craft. Oh, shit. UFO researcher Anthony Bragalia uncovered the remarkable revelation when he tracked down ufologist... Shyla Franklin, who interviewed Dr. Shirley Wright in 1993 about her time working with Einstein in the summer of 1947. As luck would have it, Franklin still had the tapes from her conversation with the former assistant, and what she told the researcher was nothing short of stunning. According to Wright, she accompanied Einstein to what has been dubbed a crisis conference that was hastily held in July of 1947 at a remote Army airbase in the American Southwest. Upon their arrival, the duo entered a hangar that was under heavy security, and when they entered the building, they discovered that it contained a rather curious craft that appeared to have sustained significant damage. Quote, it was a disc-shaped sort of concave, uh, Wright recalled. Its size stood up to one-fourth of the hangar floor. While her response to the strange scene was one of wonderment, half curiosity and maybe half fear, she said that Einstein was, quote, not disturbed at all, and instead was primarily concerned with what sort of insights about propulsion in the universe could be gleaned from the vehicle. That sounds like Einstein, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, he sees this down spaceship, he's just like, how can we use this to uh, power our spaceships? Um so that was Einstein clearly being involved in the Roswell crash hmm. and possibly even asked to study it. I don't know what to make of that, uh, but I guess he was also taken to another area where there was a still living being that was struggling to stay alive and making strange sounds, but no coherent words or communication. Yeah. I mean, that's... That definitely uh, happened. Of course. Of course. I mean, it's yeah. right here. Uh, where does Tim Benal get these? If... I don't know what to think about that. You because, don't think this really happened? Uh, you know, I don't know. How, how would I know? Um, Wright claimed that when the pair were then presented with the bodies of five nearly indistinguishable beings that had apparently been aboard the craft, 
The scientist's former assistant observed that the beings were about five feet tall, without hair, with big heads and enormous dark eyes, and their skin was gray with a slight greenish tinge. Little green men. Yeah. So you mm. heard it here first, folks. Einstein was at Roswell. For once, I have nothing to say, because I would really <laughs> like this story to be true. And probably it would be better if it were about Bigfoot. Bigfoot's nice, but I li- aliens are good. Too. Aliens are good. Weak and weird. Well, that about does it for today. I know I had a great time. Did you? Yes, Nat. I had a great time, too. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Uh, visit us at middleagesrecovery.com, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, YouTube, and Twitter. So tweet us a twat, you twit. We actually did get a tweet from Wharf Dad. We so did? He's the only one that tweets us on Twitter. So Warf, What did he say? Um, he said, I listen, or I'm a Twitter, or here's a twat. I forget what he said. He's but, probably a wharf rat. Yes. Right? Must be Wharf Dad. Right. So Grateful thank you, Dad. Wharf yeah. Dad, for tweeting us a twat. Uh, support your favorite show. Drop a five-star review on uh, Apple Podcast app, please. Join our fa- private Facebook group. Buy a t-shirt. Or There's two. plenty of cool t-shirts to get. Simply write and say hello. We love meeting new monsters and chopping it up on the Facebook group. And finally, the best way to help the show is to share it with a friend. If you get something out of our little show, please Share the love and help grow the RMA movement. Where is the love? (laughs) As we say, non proficiat perfecto. Progress, not perfection. Good.